morning. Here's my bulletin. Sorry, the printer is uh, on vacation. Is there something going on here? Does that sound funny out there? It sounds funny up here. Oh, okay. Well, we'll just go with it until something changes. Um, announcements. Okay. 
Go ahead, Jerry. There's a ton of people. this morning is found in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 12, 16, 7, and 5.
Scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis, the 25th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11, page 37. Let's stand. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Rakishan, Ladan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Gadshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Eshurun, Lethushim, and 
Midian now. The sons of Midian were were the children of Abraham gave his concubines Abraham gave gifts and while he was still living he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country these were the days of the of the years of Abraham's life 175 years Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people Isaac and Ishmael his sons east of Mamre that Abraham purchased from the hidden.
text this morning. We're still in the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Looking at verses 1 and 2. In our last study in the series, The Patriarchs, we considered a husband for Rebecca. Eliezer, Abraham's servant, reasoned with Rebecca's family to secure her as a bride for Isaac. While Rebecca's father, Bethuel, and her mother were part of the negotiations, it was really Rebecca's brother, Laban, who concluded, This is of the Lord. Genesis 24, verse 50. He spoke for the family, and he gave his blessing to the marriage. That's not unusual. He was probably operating in, in light of the aged uh, of ages of his parents. He was proceeding for them. But no one had sought Rebecca's viewpoint on the matter. Finally, they did ask her what her decision was, and she said, I will go, that is, with Eliezer. About time that they <laughs> asked her that. I will go. And that would mean going back to the Negev, which is the southern part of Palestine, incidentally about a 700-mile journey from Ur to that location. We don't think anything of that. Drive 700 miles. It's 695 miles from Lapeer to my home state and home city of Pennsylvania. So, be like me, about a six-hour trip, six-and-a-half-hour trip, in a car. What would it be to travel 700 miles via donkey or camel or whatever? Think about it. We learned how Isaac visited the fields watching. That's where he's at. He's contemplating that Eliezer, his servant, might be successful obtaining a bride for him. And off in the distance, he saw the caravan approaching. Rebecca, for her part, was also eager to meet Isaac as she dismounted her camel and ran into his arms. Though strangers at first, this arranged marriage had the stamp of God's blessing upon it. So before we poo-poo the way things were done in this Oriental culture, oh, well, they, I want to choose my own bride. I want to choose my own groom, whatever the case is. Just remember that when God is in something like this, it's doomed to be blessed of God. And I also remind you that love is a choice, not just a feeling. It has to be a choice, else why God could not command us. Can't command people to feel something. They either feel it or they don't. But if it's something that can be worked out objectively, it can be commanded. And so it was with regard to this marriage. We drew out a number of lessons over on God's superintendence. Number one, that God's providence 
is a safe God, excuse me, a safe guide to follow if you're not. You have to have the if there. Providence is safe to follow if it does not run contrary to God's revealed word. There are many times when God, in his providence, opens what looks to us like, oh, there's a door. God opened the door. I'm going to go through. Well, before you jump through, you need to consider what does the revealed word of God say about what it means to go through that door? Because sometimes providence is not a green light. It's a yellow light, which means caution. You need to test what you're thinking of doing by the written word of God. What is to govern our lives? Not providence, but the word of God. Now, if providence aligns with the word of God, yeah, then we got two things in favor of going in that direction. We learn, secondly, that believers can be counted on for godly counsel and aid. Rebecca leaned on her brother Laban in her decision, and he was a good counselor. Number three, God preserved Rebecca for Isaac. In other words, she wasn't snatched up by some other suitor. And because she was beautiful, I think that was the providence of God in itself. And number four, to love or not to love is a choice and not simply a matter of feelings. I've done a lot of counseling in this whole area where people, well, I just don't feel love for such and such. Are we exonerated if our feelings don't line up? No, we're commanded to love. We're even commanded to love our enemies. But you have to get into a biblical understanding of what it means to love somebody. And it doesn't always mean the mushy-gushy feelings. It means that you're determined to do them what is right and good and righteous. And that you can you can love an enemy. How would you love an enemy? Well, if he's hungry. Jesus says you could feed him. If he's thirsty, you could give him something to drink. If he's naked, you could give him some clothes to wear. See, that's those are practical outworkings of the gospel, which we don't often consider to be love, but they are. Well, today's study brings us to the final days of Abraham's life and his marriage to Keturah. So as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Pray your blessing upon it. I have nothing to say except it be the word of God. These that have come today have not come to hear opinion. They've come to hear what God's word says. And it's interesting to note, and we do note it, that although this was written way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the word of God is eternal. That is to say, if it was truth way back then, it's still truth today. It's not uh, flexible like our society says. They talk about your truth and my truth and -and so-and-so's truth as though everybody can just make their own truth. Well, they're making their own truth and heading all the way to hell with it. Because they didn't abide by thus saith the Lord. Lord help us not to do that. We don't want to be 
following our truth because our sinful selves invent things for us to do that ought not to be done and approve of things that should not be approved. So teach us to know the difference. Help us today as we study in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I'm dying up here. Is it warm? Maybe it's just me. It's warm, I see people. Can we turn the fans on or is that too much? Maybe too much. My wool winter jacket here is too much. I'll tell you that. Abraham and Keturah. Sometime after Isaac's marriage to Rebekah, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Verse 1. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, verse 20. 40 years old. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to Sarah, chapter 21, verse 5. So that makes him, Abraham, around 140 years old when he married Keturah. Give or take a few years. 140 years old. This guy's getting married. Again. The name Keturah comes from the Hebrew Katar, which means incense or a sweet-smelling aroma. Which played a vital part, really, in Israel's worship of God. One translation lists it as jasmine. I don't know if you've ever smelled jasmine, but sweet, wonderful, perfume-like odor. I don't know if it was jasmine or not, but that's what they did. So Keturah's name comes from that which is a sweet-smelling aroma, which played a vital role in the worship of God. Exodus 30, put the altar, that is of incense, in front of the curtain that is before the Ark of the Testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony, there I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on that altar every morning when he tends to the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight so that incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Exodus 30, verses 6 to 8. So night and day, the incense was replaced so that it would burn 24 hours a day. Again we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum, resin, uncha, galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder, place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. 
Whoever makes any like it and to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. And what's he saying? If you make this perfume for yourself, we're going to kill you. That's what he's saying. This is holy, H-O-L-Y, holy to the Lord. It is for him and him alone. That's Exodus 30, verses 34 and following. Now in number 16, the sons of Korah, Dathan and Abiram, protested the authority of the Levites. Here's what they did. By taking censers and burning the sacred incense in them. All 250 were consumed with fire and their brass censers were beaten into overlay for the altar as a reminder, verse 40, to remind the Israelites that no one except the descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord or he would become like Korah and his followers. Number 16, verse 32, verse 30. Now, in all of these texts, the word for incense is this name, Keturah. So Keturah was a specially formulated sweet-smelling incense reserved alone for the worship of God. No one was to reproduce it for private use. It was holy. It was set aside as something especially marked for God. Oh, and one thing more, the incense, the rising perfumed smoke, represented the prayers of God's people. David put it this way, May my prayer be set before you like incense. The word is keturah that he uses. Let me read it again. May my prayer be set before you like incense, like keturah, May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Psalm 141, verses 2 and following. Again, when Zechariah the priest, this is in the New Testament, when Zechariah the priest took his turn in officiating at the temple in the worship of God, Luke chapter 1 verse 10 tells us, when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So they weren't allowed in, but you see what's going on. The incense is being offered. They know that. They're out there praying as the priest is burning the incense in the worship of God. The Greek word here, because this is not Hebrew here, this is New Testament, so this is Greek. Thumiao means to fumigate with smoke. Hmm. It's not the Hebrew word, but it's the same ceremony in the same temple of old. John describes the heavenly worship of God in Revelation 5, verse 8. And here's what he says. 
The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden golden bowls full of incense, which are, I'm reading Scripture, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, that's Revelation 5 and verse 8. Now, I've said all that to say this. Abraham's second wife bore the name of the sacred perfumed incense that God would later choose to be associated only with his holiness and his worship. So she became a sweet fragrance to God and a fitting wife for Abraham in his old age. Now, Keturah is not a Sarah. She's not a princess. That's what Sarah's name means. But she is. She is a sweet fragrance before God. And a a far cry from Hagar, whose name means flight, one who runs away from God. So Abraham remarries. Yeah, he does, but he remarries in the faith. Secondly, we note Abraham's potent virility. Verse 2 tells us Keturah bore, can you believe this? Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, count them, six sons, all total. How old is Abraham now? Well, we can assume that he was 140 when Zimran, the firstborn of Keturah, came. Abraham dies at age 175, according to verse 7. This is 35 years after the birth of Zimran. So at age 100, his procreative powers were dead. Paul explains it this way, against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He faced the fact, Paul says. Since he was about 100 years old, yeah, I guess if you're 99, you're about 100 years old. My mother lived to age 97. My dad lived to be 100 years old. Face the fact that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief of court regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Now that's faith, brethren. Revelation, or not Revelation, Romans 4, 18 through 21. So he's trusting the promise of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, 
and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Hebrews 11, verse 11 and 12. By the way, these statements, like as numerous as the stars in the sky or as countless as the sand on the seashore, does not mean that you and I go out and try to count the stars or the sand on the seashore to figure out how many descendants Abraham is going to have. These are Hebraisms, which means that they, they're given for this, like a metaphor. It's like saying, boy, he's going to have so many descendants, you aren't going to be able to count them. Now, in our modern day, we'd throw a computer there and say, well, we'll see, just see about that. We'll count them. And people, people do that kind of thing. They don't understand how the Bible is written. But God is saying to them, there's going to be lots of them, descendants. So many won't be able to count. From our text here, it is obvious that the enablement of God did for Abraham to produce an heir through Sarah, that was Isaac, has not abated in the 13 years since Sarah's, Sarah's death. Chapter 23, verse 1. In other words, Abraham still possessed the procreative power to reproduce six more sons at age 140 and beyond. Just think about it. What was God's promise to Abraham? Let me read it for you. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. Genesis 17, verse 5 and 6. And that's exactly what's going on in his legacy. Now, Abraham's estate left to Isaac was his way of taking care of his son and giving him his inheritance. But there were provisions for his older children as well. Verse 5 and 6 reads, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But, always look for the but, always look for the exception. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. He sent them away from his son Isaac, to the land of the east. Genesis 25, verse 5, verse 6. Does that sound familiar? In a moment of self-assertiveness and impatience, Sarah married off Hagar, her maid to Abraham, hoping to produce children through her. You remember that whole story? Instead of being a blessing, however, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, became a thorn in Sarah's side. 
she, he threatened to obstruct and endanger Isaac's inheritance. So Sarah pressured Abraham, saying to Abraham, Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. And the scripture says, The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Genesis 21, verse 10, 11. Ishmael was also his son, you see. Well, he didn't know what to do. Caught between a rock and a hard place. Ishmael was his son. Isaac, his son. Got his wife trying to keep peace in the family. Should he listen to Sarah? Should he, or should he pull rank on her as the head of the house? God stepped in with an amicable solution. We read, but God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring are going to be reckoned or counted. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Genesis 21 so you see how God works out some of the dilemmas that we get ourselves into. I'll make him a blessing too. But in the case of what she's saying, that Isaac is the preferred seed or child, yeah, Sarah's right. Now here we are more than 50 years later, and guess what? Abraham is still operating on the principle laid down by Sarah and confirmed by God, namely, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be counted. Chapter 121, verse 12. So, the estate goes to Isaac, but while he's still alive, Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. Ishmael and the other six men listed in verse 2. And as with Agar and Ishmael in the days of Sarah, so now with Keturah and her sons, Abraham sent them away from his son Isaac to the land on the east. Verse 6. Well, finally Abraham himself died at age 175, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the family plat, which you remember was the cave of Machpelah, where Sarah was buried. So he's dead. He's gone. The great father of our faith. Now what lessons do we learn from the life of a man well-lived. The spiritual soul of a man well-lived. Number one, we can learn that death dissolves the marriage relationship and it permits remarriage in the faith. Excuse me, in the faith. When Dee and I were in college together at John Brown University, we lived next door to a married couple who were also students at the school. 
but the wife had cancer. And after graduation, we heard that she had succumbed to the disease. A number of years later, we heard that the husband had remarried another Christian woman who became his soulmate. This is not that unusual. Your former pastor did the same thing. He met a certain woman after leaving Thornville. God blessed that union and married her. In the original creation of Eve, God had admitted, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2, verse 18. This is interesting because guess what? This is the first thing in Scripture that is mentioned as not being good. Anytime, you guys that work on translations, you know. Anytime God mentions something for the first time in the Word of God, that's a clue in terms of emphasis. Search it out, God is saying. Not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam living alone, not appropriate. He needed a compatible companion. The beauty of the pristine creation, think about that, as stunning as Eden was, the activity of caring for Eden, the work of pruning the trees, the companionship of domesticated animals, none were wild. Think about that. Big old lion could come up, lick your face, it'll bite you. I have a little lion at my house. <laughs> he only weighs nine pounds. That's pretty big for a domestic cat. All this was totally inadequate, woefully inferior to the needs of a thinking, reasoning, feeling human being. Brethren, we are more than animals. We are. We bear the image. We bear the personality of God. And God is a gregarious being. He walked. He talked. He carried on conversation with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 8. Dr. Doolittle may talk to the animals and the animals to him, but that's fiction. Adam was living in the real world. And being the only human being on the scene, he was lonely and incomplete. When God created Eve and brought her to Adam, we are told, the man said, Ooh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Genesis 2, verse 23. Jesus said of this bond, so they were no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Matthew 19, verse 10. 
So that being said, to discourage divorce, there is one dissolution of marriage that is legitimate to all. Paul talks about it. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. And that, of course, applies to a widower, too. Like Abraham, who remarried after the death of Sarah. And he took Keturah as a sweet-smelling aroma to God as his wife. The Pharisees thought about this whole business. And they popped a question to Jesus that they thought, this is going to trip this guy up. They told him a fable. It was a fable. About this woman who had married seven men. Now one after the other. So one she marries, he dies. So she marries the next guy. He dies. And this goes on through seven guys. So here was their question. Whose wife is she going to be when when he gets to heaven? Now they thought, (laughs) we got you now. We've tripped you up. But Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and they are given in marriage. But Those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Luke 20, verse 34. And John shows us in the Revelation that not only are we God's children, but we are the bride of Christ, right? Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, says John. Then the angel said to me, write it. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding Supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. So however much you love your spouse today, love for Christ must and will supersede that love, and that's the mark of a disciple of Christ. And that's my next point, that God's enablement to live for him exceeds what we expect. You ever conclude that what God asks of you or expects of you is just way too much? It's too much, God. I can't take this. It's beyond your desires. It's beyond your capabilities. You do not see how you can pull this off. That's especially true as we age. Abraham, by the time of our text, is a very old man. 
even by the biblical standards of his day. Verse 8 says, He died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Wow, this triplet, think about it. Old age, old man, full of years. Saying the same thing three different ways. Old age, old man, full of years. And saying it three different ways is meant to drive home the point that humanly speaking, he had come to the end of his days, the end of his strength, the end of his life. Verse 8 says, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. But before he died, he remarried. And with Keturah, he sired six more sons, from which came six more nations, thus being used as God's instrument of fulfilled prophecy, namely that through Abraham nations and kings would come. This tells us that while it was true that Abraham's procreative ability was dead, God's enablement was no meager rejuvenation of his virility to produce just one descendant, namely Isaac. No, it didn't stop there. It was rather an enablement which sired six more generations of descendants 50 years into the future. Think about that. Brethren, this is our God. It's our God. You ask for daily bread and he gives you steak and wine. You seek for wisdom as in the case of Solomon and you become the richest king in silver and gold and wealth that the world has ever known. You ask for strength as in the case of Samson. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Remember, they blinded him. Then Samson reached out and touched the two central pillars on which the temple Dagon stood. And bracing him against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he was alive. Judges 16, verse 28 and following. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is a prayer that transcends time and it challenges us in our day, namely that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp. Grasp what? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able 
to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, verse 17 and 18. God's enablement to live for him exceeds our expectations. The one we ask, we should ask, believe it. And then as a third lesson, God, godly ancestors, this is something we need to take to heart. Godly ancestors are no guarantee of godly offspring. Look at verse 2. Among the sons which godly Abraham fathered with Keturah, we read the name Midian, M-I. D-I-A-N, Midian. Who were the Midianites? Well, the Midianites pop up on the pages of Scripture time and time again as the enemies of God's people. It was the Midianite merchant that Joseph's brother sold him to as they proceeded to transport him to Egypt where they were going. And in turn, when they got down there, they sold him to Potiphar. Genesis 38, verse 28 and so on. So, Joseph, think about that. He hadn't done anything bad to them or to his brothers. The Midianites were glad to take him and enslave him. It was the Midianite authorities who conspired together with Moses. No, not with Moses, excuse me. With those of Moab to hire Balaam to curse Israel and Moses. Numbers 22, verse 7. It was a Midianite woman who seduced an Israelite man in the worship of Baal. And when this was known openly, God sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. And they were still dying until Phinehas, Aaron's son, speared them both to death. Numbers 25, verse 6. In the days of the judges, God punished Israel for its evil by setting the Midianites over them. And we are told Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Judges 6, verse 7. And you remember that Gideon became the champion sent by God to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. So the lesson to take to heart here is especially important for all who are raised in the Christian faith. You may have had godly grandparents, but that doesn't mean you are godly. You may have Christian parents, but that doesn't mean that you are a Christian. The biblical histories are full of the Hophnis and the Phineases and the Nadabs and the Abihus 
who were sons of priests of Absalom and Adonijah, son of a godly king of David. Or we might read of Esau, who lived an immoral and profane life. But he came out of a Christian home. And now here in the family of Abraham, the friend of God, there is Midian, whose legacy is one of brutality, idolatry, death, destruction toward Israel, and who in the end God destroyed through Moses. Now you can read about it in Numbers 31. And that was the end of the matter. But it took years and years. It need not end that way. Moses' sanctuary when he fled from the wrath of Pharaoh was, guess what? Among the Midianites. Something happened. In Ruel's house, who in time gave Zipporah, his daughter, to become Moses' wife. What? He's marrying a Midianite matter with this guy. Exodus 2 verse 18. The name Ruel means friend of God. He's called Jethro in chapter 3 verse 1 of Genesis. And guess what? He gave godly counsel to Moses after the Exodus on how to distribute the burden of rule among many qualified men who became the elders of Israel. Genesis 1, Genesis 18. So, what I'm saying is that because you were born into an unbelieving and pagan family does not mean you're locked into their sin and their unbelief. Because your brother or your sister is not a believer doesn't mean that you are doomed to be an unbeliever. Each man, each woman, each boy, each girl stands before a God who calls them personally to be accountable for their own choices in life. The gospel call comes to one and all regardless of race, culture, family background, upbringing, and it says to you, rid yourselves of all the offenses that you have committed, get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Sovereign Lord, repent and live. Wow, what a wonderful message. Repent and live. That's Ezekiel 18, 31 and verse 32, but it's also the promise of the gospel. Repent and live. Jesus makes this promise. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never never drive away. John 6, verse 32. So, godly ancestors are no guarantee of godly offspring, and you're not locked into your pagan past if you come from a family that doesn't and has never known about God or And that brings me to my last point. Righteous actions predicated on God's word 
did not become obsolete with the passing of time. If you listen to the philosophers and false teachers of our day, you will succumb to the relativity of wicked thinking wherein truth is colored gray. So that there's no longer a clear demarcation between black and white, right and wrong, good or evil. Our society doesn't believe that. Everything becomes blurred and people muddle through life in a fog, not sure which path to take, which to avoid. It's nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. Isaiah describes Israel in his day, in his day, and here's what he says. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Boy, does this describe our age really well. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe <laughs> and deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 5. Observe how these people had arrived at this topsy-turvy, upside-down world where evil was now considered good and good was considered evil. What had happened? He says, they had rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 5, verse 23. In other words, they set aside God's word rule of life and they opted for their own ingenuity instead. Boy, does that describe our society. But not so with Abraham. Not so with Abraham. God had instructed him to send Ishmael away from the homestead in compliance with Sarah's wisdom that he not share in Isaac's inheritance. Now more than 50 years later, God's word is still truth, still reliable, still to be followed. And so Keturah's sons must go away. For they, like Ishmael, were not recipients of God's promise. Righteous actions grounded in God's word do not become obsolete. What I'm saying is if it's truth today, it's going to be truth tomorrow. Contrary to what our society likes to say about making your own truth. And then finally, we need to know that Jesus is the sweet aroma that wings our prayers to the throne of God and answers them. Symbolically, Keturah may be the specially perfumed incense whose aroma rises 
in intercession to God when God's people gather for worship and prayer. That was true of her. But Jesus, think of him. He's the rose of Sharon, the scripture says. He's the lily of the valley, the scripture says. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 21. His intercession before God sweetens every request. For Jesus could say of his prayers to God the Father, I know, he says to God, I know that you always hear me. John eleven forty two, And John gives us this thought. If we know that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask. First John 5. Think about that. Jesus praying for you. And he says to his heavenly father, I know you always hear me. He also gave his disciples this promise, I will do whatever you ask in my name. I'm reading scripture. So that the son may bring glory to the father. You may ask for anything in my name. And I will do it. 14, verse 13. Now, if you're going to ask something in Jesus' name, you have to understand he's not going to grant you something that's sinful or harmful to your spiritual or physical life. you got to pray his thoughts or you're not asking in his name. You're asking in your own. And that's from the book. Paul explained the theology, saying, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in the proper time. That's First Timothy 2. So we have a mediator. We have a go-between. And Jesus encourages, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Luke 11 verse 25. But James, and this is what I was referring to earlier. James exposes the naked truth about us saying... You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel, you fight. You don't have, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get, on your pleasures. James 4, verse 2 and 3. So here we are. We have this, it seems like a sweeping statement. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. 
oh, good. We start praying for things we shouldn't be asking for. And then we say, wait, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said, Jesus, that whatever we ask in your name, you would fulfill. Well, what's it mean to ask something in Jesus' name? It means you're going to ask for things that are in compliance with his holy name, his holy position as the Son of the Heavenly Father. So are we really asking for sinful things and expecting Jesus to grant us those things? That is absurd. But people do think that way. I hate to say it. Prayerlessness will keep the windows of heaven closed and locked to any blessing from God, but so will praying with wrong motives. Praying to satisfy your lust, your greed, your jealousy, your anger. Praise God, Jesus, our mediator, comes to our aid by his spirit, of whom Paul writes, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. I'm reading scripture. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I'm glad that verse And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Think of it. The Spirit pleads for us, intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We don't have to think, gee, I wonder my praying for this or that and so forth. I wonder if that's the right thing to pray for. Let me just say what I think the scripture is saying. If you are praying for sinful things, you're not going to get that answered. But if the Spirit takes our prayers, we can hardly voice or phrase according to God way of hearing as he prays for us with groans with expressions of right righteousness in our hearts in our prayers I want you to think of this Jesus pleading our case before God and the spirit interceding Nothing asked in selfishness, nothing sinful, nothing prideful, nothing outside the righteous will of God, just a sweet perfume wafting into the nostrils of God, resulting in his smile and blessing upon us. That's Keturah. Abraham's sweet wife. Not in any way denigrating Sarah. But it is saying that he had an eye for women 
who were righteous in Christ. Amen. And Keturah became an asset to Abraham and his offspring. As is evident from the son she bore. What do they do with their faith? Well, think about that. The sons. What did they do? With Abraham and Keturah. I don't know. We can't speculate. But I would say this. There is incumbent upon every son or daughter born into a Christian home wherein the Christian faith is lived out, not just spoken out, but lived out in righteous and godly ways. There is incumbent upon those offspring to take to heart what God has done in providing parents who know the truth of the Word of God, who know Christ as Savior. Because guess what? Paul says, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. So that Christian parent is God's blessing to you because they've taught you about Christ. Who's Christ? The one you're going to stand before on the day of judgment. You better have an intercessor, a lawyer, a go-between, been watching the news a young man that shot a number of people in what he called South Paris was exonerated of all those charges they didn't turn, just turn a deaf ear turn away we're going to ignore all that no he was appointed he had elder uh, he had lawyers interceded on his behalf. And the judge saw, the jury saw, innocent, 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 innocent. You know the great judgment to come. We're going to stand before the judge who knows all doesn't need a jury to tell him what's right and what's wrong, who's true, who's a liar. We are all sinners, and we're going to stand in. And that's what Jesus does. He sees your sin. He can say, hey, wait a minute. I died for Roger. I died for Jim. I died for Pat. I died for Jean. When I hung on the cross, they hung with me. Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. You can't lay hands on me. The price was paid. I had an advocate. He stood in my place. 
He's untouchable. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your truth. Scripture gives us. Bless us with that truth. And if we don't know Jesus as Savior, may this be the day that you find us in Jesus. Bless us today as we think of the communion table. In Christ's name, amen. Let's just take a 10-minute break and regather for our communion.